Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. This is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Babin. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of The Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of TheRinger.com, which is, as of this week, home to Shea Serrano's new podcast. Yes, they finally gave him a podcast. It's called Villains, where he talks about one movie villain each week. Uh, the first two that he chose to to talk about were Hannibal Lecter and Regina George. So this podcast is definitely right up my alley. I hope it's right up yours. Uh, but your alley, if you're listening to this show, is baseball. And that's what we're going to talk about with Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh right on the other side of this. So I'm joined, as always, by Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. And we're going to talk about some transactions, uh, some player movement uh, on the show today, but we have some player movement of our own. Zach Cram has moved to Illinois, and his microphone is not there yet, so he's joining us via telephone. Hello. So the reason that Zach is is joining us on telephone is uh, there's been a trade, and he's afraid of my takes. So I'm going to introduce the the trade, and then uh, I'll let Zach wind up, and eventually Ben's going to talk at some point on the show. But I don't know. I don't think he's afraid of your takes. He wants to be here to to combat. I can't let your James Paxton slander enter the world unopposed. <laughs> yeah, I can just play the the neutral moderator here, You're just not in neutral. case you guys get angry at each other already. All right. So yeah, the trade. We'll is James Paxton, or I guess former Seattle Mariners left-hander, to the New York Yankees for left-handed pitching prospect Justice Sheffield, uh, outfield prospect Dom Thompson-Williams, a former South Carolina Gamecock, and right-handed pitcher Eric Swanson. I guess, Zach, just take it away. I'll let you go first, because we have differing opinions on on this trade. Well, uh, by the time people are listening to this episode, there will be a piece up on TheRinger.com in which I call James Paxton a top-ten pitcher in baseball. So I think the Yankees added a top 10 pitcher and you don't really need to go beyond that. Paxton, yes, there are some possible demerits. He's older. He has an injury history. He's never you know, won uh, an award or made an all-star team. But if you look at basically every underlying metric in his performance, he's a top 10 pitcher. And the Yankees needed one of those to compete with Boston and Cleveland and Houston. And they got him. There's not much more you need to analyze beyond that, I think, uh, if you're going to say this is a good trade for the Yankees. Or is there? Well, so here's the thing. If you're operating from the premise that James Paxton is a top 10 pitcher in baseball, then obviously this is a steal for the Yankees. But nothing about He's never qualified for the ERA title in six major league seasons. Durability is a gigantic issue. I mean, if you want to talk about when he's on, on his day, you know, he's among the best pitchers in baseball. Certainly there was that stretch in early May where he had the 16 strikeout game and uh, the no hitter in back-to-back starts. That's incredible. There, I, there might not be 10 pitchers in baseball who can, who represent the peak that, that Paxton has. Right. So, and this isn't about, to a certain extent, this isn't about durability because the Yankees don't need him to throw 200 innings. They need him to throw game four of the ALDS against Boston or Houston. And if he's healthy there, and we've seen the the Red Sox, you don't need a, a you know a Justin Verlander to pitch the entire season if you can get that guy for that game. So, you know, we've seen that with Boston, with Nathan Eovaldi, we've seen it with Houston, with Lance McCullers and Charlie Morton. Um, but that's the kind of pitcher that Paxton is to me. A, a guy with incredible peak, but no record of longevity. Um, and the reason you can tell he's not a... a top 10 pitcher in baseball is this is not a top 10 pitcher in baseball trade return. I think Justice Sheffield's a great prospect. I think he's a good get for Seattle based on on uh, the potential that he represents, how close he is to Major League Ready. He is essentially Major League Ready. Uh, he's going to be the best. He's going to be the best prospect in the uh, in the Mariners system from the moment he puts on a Mar- Mariners uniform. He's going to he there's a, an outside chance he could be the best pitcher on the Mariners this year. I just don't get giving up all of this, like 
top 10 pitcher in baseball means that you're comparing him to guys like DeGrom and Scherzer and Kershaw and Chris Sale. And in order to be that, you need to be a 200 inning guy. And if you're a guy who has, when everything's right and everything and, uh, um, when everything's right and you've got your stuff and you're healthy and you've got your good command, you can hang with those guys. You can buy Charlie Morton off the off the free agent rack for maybe $10 million more over the next two years than Paxton has. He's not a young pitcher. There's not a whole lot of team control left. He's not that big an upgrade. It's not to say he's not a good pitcher. I think he's a good pitcher, but you can. he's not so irreplaceable that you need to go out and trade a Justice Sheffield for him. And there's... This is not to downplay the risk of a short power pitcher with spotty command. Like there's a chance that Justice Sheffield turns out to be a middle reliever and just ends up being tremendously frustrating. But there's also a chance that Justice Sheffield throws more and better innings in the major leagues over the next two years than James Paxton. So I can see, I absolutely understand why the Yankees made this trade. It's not a bad trade. I think it's a fair price for a pitcher who has a lot of risk built in, more risk than his reputation, uh, or more risk than than you will be led to believe by the way that people talk about him. Well, if I can jump in between you two <laughs> fighting people, and uh, Zach, you can have your rebuttal in a second. But I think, I mean, for one thing, the Yankees might still sign Charlie Morton or someone. I'm they sure should. that they're not done and that this is their trade acquisition, that they will have a free agent acquisition as well to round out this rotation. But I think, obviously, if you've gotten to your 30th birthday, as James Paxton just has, happy birthday, James Paxton, without ever pitching more than 160 and a third innings in a single season, obviously, a lot of things have gone wrong. And that is clearly the case for James Paxton. But I'm sure... Jeff, Zach could tell you that he has his whole injury history probably imprinted on his memory because of the pain that it causes him when James Paxton is unavailable. But the injuries that have sidelined Paxton have not been as severe as they could be or as you might infer that they were if you were to look only at the innings totals. I mean, he has not had serious arm, elbow, shoulder surgeries. He's missed time from being hit by a comebacker or having pneumonia or, you know, he's definitely had strains and, and things like that that might kind of concern you in the past. I think he strained a, a pectoral muscle. I think he may have strained an elbow at some point, a, a finger ligament. but. He's never had the really serious go under the knife, this guy might not be back again kind of injury. And when you have a string of unfortunate events the way that Paxton has, you start to think, well, this is who he is. And for whatever reason, the universe conspires against him. But I wonder whether he is someone who could get out from under that reputation because he hasn't had that serious injury. And I also think the price maybe reflects that lack of endurance. I think a lot of people are saying and have the opinion that the Mariners' return is a little light here just because there's no slam dunk prospect in the trade. You know, Sheffield's kind of like a roughly 50th or so best prospect in baseball. And then Swanson has been a good performance prospect in the upper minors, the other pitcher in the trade. But if this were Sale or someone of that caliber, I think you would see at least a second, say, top 100 guy in this package. And they didn't get that. So I think there is the lack of durability being priced in to a certain extent. I don't think you can reduce Paxton to just he can touch the elite level, but usually isn't is pretty far below that either. I think Paxson has consistently been really good since 2016, which is sort of the date you have to use to start James Paxson as a as a potential ace because that's when he started the season in the minors and then changed his arm slot before he had an extreme over the top motion and then transitioned to more of a three quarter slot, which helped him tremendously. Since then, if you look at all of his underlying statistics, they've been better than his ERA in FIP, which is fielding independent pitching that measures pitchers just by strikeouts, walks, and home runs with future outcomes. Paxton ranks fifth among starters since then. Everyone else in the top 10 we would consider an ace. It's Syndergaard, Sale, Kershaw, Kluber, DeGrom, Scherzer, Severino, Strasburg, and Nola. Paxton ranks fifth among that group. And you might say FIP is too simplistic, so then you go to baseball prospectus is ERA estimator, which is deserved run average, which considers a whole constellation of factors to to weigh a pitcher's success. And by that metric too, Paxton has been a top 10 pitcher hearing fifth among starters in 2017 and 10th among starters in 2018. And 
yes, his ERA has underperformed those peripheral numbers every year, but I think it's been shown time and again that these ERA estimators are better predictors of future success. That's kind of what happened with Aaron Nola this year. For the last few seasons, he had underperformed his peripherals, and this year he overperformed his peripherals. It's hard to predict that Paxton will continue to do that year over year. So I think just looking at his ERA and concluding that he isn't on the same level as the, the best pitchers in the sport isn't quite fair to him because he strikes tons of batters out, he doesn't walk batters, and he doesn't allow home runs, which are the starting blocks you would want for any starting pitcher. He throws a 96-mile-per-hour fastball as a lefty, which is the second fastest in the game. That, in and of itself, is a starting block you would want. And none of that, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. It's just, you're betting on a a 30-year-old, like, as much as I like DRA, and, and FIP is trash, but you know DRA I trust to a lot more, and the DRA numbers are great, and they are ace level when he's on the mound. It's also not what actually happened. So you're betting on something changing about a 30-year-old with six years of big league track record. And you know, you could talk about the arm slot, but like this paints a picture not of Anola or DeGrom or Max Scherzer or any of the other top 10 guys. This paints the Charlie Morton, Nathan Eovaldi pitcher. And, you know, Ben talked about these these injuries being freakish or, or non-arm injuries. Like, the way you feel about Paxton now is exactly how I, f- how I felt about Garrett Richards two years ago. And where's Garrett Richards now? So I just think you're a lot more optimistic than I am about what the best-case scenario for Paxton is. And, you know, we... We talked about the we saw that that ceiling for two weeks in May, but even with that great stretch, which was about ten percent of the total innings he threw last year, he was about a league average pitcher by ERA plus. So I don't know. There's there are just so many, so many things that need to fall into place. And maybe you know he gets to New York and the, and they're better coached than than the Mariners. I, I don't think anybody would disagree with uh, the, the premise that the Mariners are, or the, sorry, the, the Yankees are a lot better at developing pitchers with the, than the Mariners are. And he's a lot more useful if you're just looking for that guy who can, who can go out there and win you a play. You know, he might be the, the guy that I would want on the Yankees staff to, to start game seven of the World Series right now. Um, and that's way more useful to New York than it is to Seattle. But the price... It's fine. I think it's a good trade for both teams, but the price reflects all of the risk that there is with PAX, and I think you're you're underestimating how much risk there is. I think that's perfectly fair. It's funny that you mentioned Garrett Richards. To me, he kind of reminds me of another Garrett because this strikes me as similar to the Garrett Cole trade from last offseason, where Garrett Cole then, like PAX and now, had two remaining years until free agency, and he was a pitcher who had showed tantalizing glimpses of acehood before and hadn't quite put it all together. Paxton, his 2017, I think, resembles the season that Garrett Cole was really good. Uh, And, you know, he made the trade. I think a lot of people, us included, said that was a really great trade for Houston, and it was borne out by the results. Cole was one of the best pitchers in the American League last year. I'm not saying that that one successful trade means Paxton will definitely follow, follow that same route. But I think at the very least, it's worth the risk. And I think there's, you know, the upside that the Yankees end up with Severino and Paxson as one of the best one-two punches in baseball alongside Verlander and Cole and Kluber and Carrasco and every other pairing we would want to name at the top of the league. In terms of of being a guy who has components of of acehood with two years of, of team control left, like, I get that parallel, but it's different because, one... The Astros gave up essentially four Eric Swansons in that trade. They didn't give up anybody approaching the the prospect quality of Justice Sheffield. The other thing is Cole had the durability. He had the body. He had the stuff. He just wasn't getting the results. And he changed the way he was. He started uh, going to his four-seamer more when he got to Houston. And there's so much more precedent for somebody with the command and the durability and all those things that Cole showed. Uh, even when he wasn't at his best in in Pittsburgh, there's so much more precedent for just making that one adjustment that unlocks everything to develop more of a swing and miss pitch um, or a swing and miss arsenal than there is for somebody putting together, you know, going from being a 120 inning guy to being a 200 inning guy. So I was very optimistic about Cole. That trade from start to finish was an absolute steal, but 
I, I just come back to, you know, you could see it's a fair price, but if, if Paxton was the guy that you were saying he is, the price would have been higher. Yeah, I think I positioned myself between the two of you just to prevent a brawl, but I also just philosophically think I'm somewhere between you two because I'm with Zach in thinking that Paxton has been one of the very best and probably one of the 10 best pitchers in baseball over the past few years. ERAs aside, I think just the underlying components show that inning per inning, he has been as effective as almost any starter. And so the best case scenario, I think, is that he, I mean, it's as high as, as anyone's. I think he has that sort of ceiling. But I'm also with Michael in that I think there is legitimate concern because he hasn't done that for a full season, or at least what we've traditionally thought of as a full season. It's worth pointing out that there are just fewer and fewer guys who get to 200 innings, even if they are healthy. So we've seen a a dramatic drop-off in the number of 200-inning guys, let alone 220, 215, 210 guys in just the past few years. So the fact that he might only get to 160 again, well, 160 is still really valuable if you're as good as Paxton. I mean, that's kind of what Chris Sale did this year. That's not what Chris Sale did this year. That, well, in terms yeah, of in innings, terms of I mean, innings that is but yeah. what he did within those yeah. innings, let's no, don't no, no. I'm not equating their performance. I'm I'm just saying innings. You can have a big impact in that number of innings if you're really good, and I think that Paxton can be that good or or very close to that good. No one is quite Chris Sale, but I think Paxton's very close, and so it all comes down to the innings and. The debate about acehood is always a very unproductive one because it becomes a a definitional debate about what you think an ace is and how many aces you think there are. And is it just the best pitcher on each team or is it a very small group of guys who get the ace label? And if we're just applying ace to like a handful of pitchers in baseball, I wouldn't put Paxton in that group. I wouldn't put him with the Verlanders and the Scherzers and the Klubers the guys who've been just as good on an inning-per-inning basis but have thrown a whole lot more innings. I think you have to distinguish those two guys. But in terms of just talent and who would you want on a mound if you have to win a certain game and he's healthy, Paxton is on a pretty short list of pitchers for me. There's also the sense that Paxton in New York, you know, I don't know what that means if he'll be a big-game pitcher in a bigger market that's contending for the playoffs. But what I do know is that the Yankees did have holes in their rotation, and that was even more than Machado or Bryce Harper, their number one area of weakness this offseason. They have the super lineup that set the home run record last year. They had the super bullpen that will continue to be the best in baseball, maybe baseball history. But their rotation last year, they gave 23 starts to Sonny Gray, who was pretty bad. They gave uh, 20-something starts to a lot of guys who started the season in the minor leagues. Uh, I think I calculated that outside Severino, Tanaka, and Sabathia, their starters combined for a 4.71 ERA. And that's with Jay Happ being good after the trade deadline. That's with your guy, Lance Lynn, being pretty good after the trade deadline. So they, they won 100 games with that group, and maybe that means they don't need you know massive improvements, but I think Paxton does provide some stability for both purposes of depth and top-level talent. I wouldn't be surprised, like Ben said earlier, if they add someone like Patrick Corbin still, and that would give them a rotation potentially to rival Houston at the top of the American League. And that's a that's a good point, because it reflects this trade. The reason I like this trade for New York is it reflects where they are in the standings, because this is not a trade that you make to make the playoffs. This is a trade that you make to advance in the playoffs. And, you know, I, John Morosi said that they were going to keep going after Jay Happ and Patrick Corbin and other starting pitchers, and they should because, I mean, that is that is the area of need. I don't know, you know, Machado and Harper would obviously be an upgrade for just about anybody, but the starting starting rotation was where uh, where they started to fall down, and particularly those guys who can deliver high end innings in in October. So. There's, I guess, there's risk with every tr- trade where you where you trade a prospect for a pitcher. But uh, now I don't hate this. I just think Paxton is a little overrated. That's, uh, and I think the Mariners. I don't think he was particularly useful to Seattle over the next couple of years. And I think they got a, a pretty good package for him. I think that's fair. It's good when we disagree. It doesn't happen often enough. 
We got really heated on Slack last night. I think, but you ultimately came together. Well, you you found a middle ground. I was hoping you'd be at each other's throats. That's good podcast. Yeah, I mean, the the mistake we made was was getting out the the heavy guns last night while the while the bikes weren't rolling. But like this, this yeah, is the angriest that, that, that we've been at each other. I was. Uh, <laughs> I went to Slack at one point and there were like 40 unread messages and they were all <laughs> Bauman and Zach going back and forth about James Paxton. Yeah, I was ready to to give you the who will be better over the next two years, Sheffield or Paxton bet. But then you you came in with, with Paxton's better or projected to be better than Nola next season. I realized I didn't have to. Um, yeah, I mean, part of this is just like commit. Like I realize I'm sort of out here on a limb. Like everybody seems to like Paxton and I just disagree and uh you know to a certain extent i'm just steering into the bit but like there's a you know if a pigeon shits on his shoulder next year he could wind up missing the next 18 months like we don't we don't know he's going to be available. he does have a history with birds attacking him that is true <laughs> that's true <laughs> um i don't know what the bird situation is like in, in seattle but there, there's definitely no shortage of, of birds in in new york i have been pooped on that's by a pigeon. unfortunate all right Um, let's go to something I think we all do agree on, which is, uh, Adrian Beltre has announced his retirement this morning uh, as we record on Tuesday, uh, just to go down a couple of the the numbers, although numbers really aren't the story with, with Beltre, 3,166 career hits, 477 home runs, five gold gloves, 95.7 baseball reference war. And I like this one. He's not, you know, we, we think of a Beltre as having slowed down a lot over the past few years and he has, but he was an above average player by baseball references wins above average. and has been every single year since 2003, uh, when Zach was an embryo, I think. So, uh, yeah, I think we can just sort of go around the, the table and, and do a little bit of Adrian Beltre appreciation, uh, starting with Ben. Yeah, well, I think that is his legacy to me is just how great he was late in his career and how he changed the perception of how great he was and how great he had been. We talked about this on the podcast when he got to 3,000 hits, but he's someone who I think we all got smarter and recognized how good he was as a young player because we could account for the park and we could account for the defense and see that he was actually underappreciated during those years. But then he reached a whole nother level after he got to age 30. And I tweeted something earlier. He is eighth on the all-time list of position players in terms of war from ages 31 to 39. And it's with inner circle Hall of Famers on that list. And he never had a bad season. He never got bad. He never got you know, ugly at the end. I mean, he would have some hamstring issues, but he was one of the very best defensive third basemen, even at age 39, which is incredible. And if he had decided to come back next year, he would have been projected to be a a pretty decent player still. So I think that is a big part of it is just what he was able to do, how he was able to change the perception from no one saying, oh, this is a future Hall of Famer, you know, years into his career to everyone just kind of agreeing. Yeah, of course, He's a a Hall of Famer just in the span of a few years in his early 30s where he really changed all of our minds. Growing up, uh, you know, I wasn't quite an embryo, Michael, but I remember thinking that Beltre's 2004 season when he hit 48 home runs for the Dodgers, finished second in MVP voting, thinking that was a really aberrant outlier. He then went to Seattle and I didn't understand park effects. I didn't really quite understand how to value defense at that point. So I just thought he was the disappointment kind of with the common wisdom. He had a career OPS of 759 in Seattle and I just sort of wrote him off and he didn't, after 2004, he didn't receive another MVP vote until 2010. So that was a long time for his reputation to kind of sour, at least in terms of how good I thought he was. And then ever since then, not only have I gained an understanding of the value he actually brought and that maybe his, batting line was sort of masking how good he was, but he actually looked good by the batting line again, too. He had an OPS of 130 or higher for like six straight years starting this decade, and like Ben said, both aged really well and sort of began to fit the time period a little better, which I think aids our understanding of his true greatness. Yeah, it's it's not just that that we appreciated, we began to to have the tools to appreciate that he wasn't as bad as as everybody seemed to think when he was in Seattle. But 
as you know, those years in, he had some of his best seasons in, in the later years in Boston and Texas. Like he was a top 10 player in the American league for a lot of his mid thirties and making those couple world series, I think helped a lot with his, helped a lot with, with his legacy. And just, I mean, you just, he's 17th all time in career plate appearances, like up with guys that, that we think of as having super, super long careers, like, you know, Dave Winfield and, and Hank Aaron and, and got Al Kaline and guys who just played forever and he was not he not only played forever he was good forever but it even beyond that like he was he's one of my favorite uh just from a neutral standpoint one of one of the coolest baseball players that that I've gotten to watch um just in terms of I'm a sucker for good defensive third baseman for starters but he also like had that little the little bit of Vlad Guerrero and his ability to to be a great bad ball hitter, a great batting eye, hit for power without striking out a lot, and just being a fun presence throughout his career, like and into his mid to late thirties, the way he he helped those Texas Rangers, like he was there long enough to help multiple generations of young Rangers players grow up. You know, you see his impact on on guys from Elvis Andrews at like Elvis Andrews has been, uh, been there long enough that he's having an influence on guys like Joey Gallo and Nomar Mazzara and, and Ronald Guzman and like him becoming that, that like lovable father figure while he's still playing and, and playing effectively made him, I think one of the most beloved players of major league baseball or some, some people, uh, you know, Rangers fans and Rangers writers are just going around on Twitter today, just saying, remember when Adrian Beltre did this? Remember when Adrian Beltre did that? Uh, you know, Jeff Passan shared the the profile he he wrote on, on Beltre a while back. And it's just one story of him being a great player, like a scary good player and a cool guy, all just one after another. And I don't know how many of those players there are were, who were this good for this long and ended up being this universally beloved. Yeah, he's right up there with and probably ab- above Bartolo Colon in terms of most gift players and just most delightful highlights. And I know as people have pointed out now with Beltre's retirement, I think Colon is the last player who's still active who played in the majors in the 20th century. So partly it's just longevity, but it's also more than that. It's how Beltre would fall to one knee after he swung all the time or, you know, the touching his head stuff or the rom-com with Andrus. There's just so much that he just made it fun. I mean, there are players who have been as good as Adrian Beltre, not many, but some who did it in kind of a workmanlike way where we couldn't necessarily recall moments. Like I was thinking about this with Joe Maurer when he just retired. Joe Maurer was not quite as good a player as Adrian Beltre, at least in terms of career, but you know, he was great, but there aren't that many highlights or individual moments really that you think of with Joe Maurer. Whereas with Beltre, there are just too many to name. And I know there are compilation videos of many Beltre moments going back years. So at least we have those. It's weird because I, I feel like we're all going to miss him, but also it feels like this is a good time. You know, like we all appreciate, everybody seems to appreciate that we all got to watch him and enjoy him. And, you know, I certainly wish him well in retirement and look forward to seeing him inducted to the Hall of Fame in six years. So. Uh, mm-hmm. All right, so let's go from greats of the past to greats of the present. We didn't talk about the MVP and Cy Young results. Um, I feel okay with most of these. Mookie Betts finally got one over on Mike Trout. I had Trout in my awards column, but it was really close. So, you know, Zach, you any thoughts on AL MVP? I think it made sense. I'm a little, honestly, surprised that Trout gained so many second-place votes, I think, you know, Jacob deGrom's Cy Young win obviously shows that pitcher wins don't matter. I think Trout coming in second in the MVP voting yet again and winning, I think he got 24 second place votes, shows that a lot of voters don't necessarily care anymore that the Angels didn't make the playoffs. I wasn't sure if maybe someone like Jose Ramirez would sneak into second place or Alex Bregman. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the the final balloting mimics perfectly what I would have done. Yeah, I was sort of surprised that Trout finished up there too because there were other good players who could have finished there based on playoff narrative. You know, you could have had one of the Indians infielders, Jose Ramirez, Francisco Lindor. You could have had J.D. Martinez up there. And Trout was easily in second, which was nice. And I don't think this was even a case of, oh, Mookie won because the Red Sox made the playoffs and the Angels didn't. I mean, I think Mookie was probably the deserving AL MVP winner this year. I think just in terms of 
stats in terms of actual value. So narrative aside, I think he won it fair and square. I expected bets to win. I think they were about even on on performance and bets just had the just in terms of the um he had the better narrative. And also there's been this groundswell to sort of elevate bets to to this level. And it's it's been time to for him to just get one of these. So it's it's sort of like the Josh Donaldson year in 2015 where you know it it was pretty close on performance, but I've got no problem with you know absolutely well deserved for for Mookie Betts. Um the National League MVP, I've got takes on now because uh, <laughs> I love Christian Yelich. He's a great player. He's a fun player. Um, he, I, I adore his game. He wasn't even close to the best player in, in the National League this year. And so, what frustrates me is that it's not that this you know, breakout star on a, a fun up and coming team that that made a, a strong push to the playoffs and you know was in the headlines all, all the time throughout the the back half of the season and really performed well down the clutch. That's, you know, that's what an MVP season looks like. Um, and if you're going to vote for Yelich first, more power to you. But if you vote for Yelich first, you can't have DeGrom on your ballot at all. And so many people, and there were people who left DeGrom off entirely, but the case for, there is no performance-based case that Yelich was a better player than than DeGrom. Like if, you know, war is, is a, a, a paint roller and not a brush, but DeGrom was like three or four wins ahead of, of Yelich this season. And, you know, what Yelich does is sort of your run of the mill. I, I don't know that his stats get you MVP every year. DeGrom had a historically great season this year. So if you're going to vote for it, the only rationale in my mind for, for putting Yelich over DeGrom are he was on a playoff team or pitchers have their own award. And some guys left, you know, some voters left uh, DeGrom off their ballot entirely. I respect that more than I respect putting Yelich first and DeGrom third or fourth, because that just, that just shows me that that you don't believe in, in your own criteria all the way. Yeah. I mean, I am in the camp that thinks that pitchers should just have their separate award, that maybe there should be a unified award that is just best player, but that pitchers shouldn't get MVP. They should have Cy Young and position players should have MVP and that's how it should be. But that is not, that's not how it is. How it yeah. is. Yeah. So if you're going by who's eligible to win this award, then I think Jacob deGrom had a great argument and probably was the most valuable player in the National League. And I think it probably does come down to the non-playoff team. I think if deGrom had been on a playoff team, I don't know whether he would have won, but I think it would have been a lot closer. I mean, We saw Verlander win the MVP award in 2011. We saw Kershaw win in 2014. So it's not impossible that a pitcher could still win this award in this era, I don't think. So it must come down to the fact that DeGrom was not on a playoff team, I would think. But you're right. If you're going to vote for DeGrom, unless you're just going to leave him off entirely as a protest to say that pitchers shouldn't be eligible, then it is kind of hard to square not having him be above Christian Yelich. Zach, you got takes? I think looking at the the results, you know, they publish the number of votes that each player got in each position. And DeGrom had the widest range of any player in AL or NL voting. He had at least one vote in first place all the way through ninth place. So I think that speaks to what you're talking about, that there was a, a bit of a scattered interpretation of where to put him and not necessarily a logically consistent one because while there was one voter who put in first and seven voters who put in second, then there were also voters who put them third, fourth, fifth. So it's, I guess, a question of if you have these demerits about not being the playoffs or it being a pitcher contending for a position player award, how far do you penalize the guy? And I you know, have never voted for one of these things. I haven't really had to grapple with that yet. But it's interesting to see how different voters weigh those factors uh, you know, as they're filling out their ballots. The one righteous man in the BBWAA was uh, Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic, our, our, our friend yes. and former podcast guest. So thank you, Nick, for being the only, the only, having the only <laughs> correct opinion in the entire electorate. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just frustrating. Cause like, it just, I, on one level, I, we do think about the person that you'd vote for, for like first or second on MVP as being like a different class of player as somebody that like you go 10 deep, like that can mean, you know, Nick Markakis, got got down ballot votes um so you know on one level it's it illustrates that that we sort of think about third through eighth and mvp balloting as like almost a different question than first or then who actually wins the award but 
it's just frustrating because DeGrom was so obviously the best player in the National League this year. And, on, and you know, as much as I liked Yelich and his greatest season as as he had and as fun as he was to watch and cover, you know, I don't know that he would have been any higher than fourth. Like, the question to me is not DeGrom, or it's not DeGrom versus Yelich, it's Kyle Freeland versus Yelich. That's how pitcher-heavy the top of the National League was. So, again, this is, might be like the Paxton thing where I'm the only person who feels this way and it's just driving me up the wall. But, um, <laughs> you know, we talked about it. DeGrom felt like an obvious Cy Young winner. He got 29 out of the, the 30 uh, votes. Um, the one guy who voted for Max Scherzer took a lot of crap on the internet, but I feel like that's a lot more defensible vote than voting for Yelich over to ground for MVP. And I'm finally going to let that go. Um, I think Ben, you alluded to DeGrom winning the Cy Young as being like the last nail in the coffin for, for the pitcher win. And, you know, Brian Kenny's been on this horse. I feel like we, answered that question already though years ago when Felix Hernandez won the uh the Cy Young with what was it like 13 or 14 wins yeah um, except that and maybe you were segueing into this but the AL that is voting, exactly what I was doing <laughs> yeah seems to reopen that question right because I don't know how you can I mean I didn't have a vote this year but if I had I would have voted for Justin Verlander over Blake Snell who won the award and it seems to me that the thing that must have swayed people when it came to Snell was the fact that either he had the most wins in the majors, he was 21 and five, he was one of only two pitchers to get to that 20 win mark this year, and he had the lowest ERA. He had a 1.89 ERA, which was the lowest other than DeGrom. It seems like those kind of old school stats must have carried the day because otherwise, I don't know what the case is necessarily. It's it's definitely not innings, right? Because Verlander had a, a huge advantage there, 34 extra innings. If you go by various ERA estimators and FIP, which you've already declared trash, but Verlander, I believe, had a better one than Snell did and certainly struck out more guys than Snell did. So I just think Verlander was better and also amassed more innings. And because he went deeper into games, he was facing the third times through the order thing much more than Snell was. So to me, Verlander was the best and most valuable pitcher in the AL. And yeah, it, it's hard to draw conclusions from these votes because with DeGrom, you'd say wins are dead. No one cares about wins. With the AL Cy Young voting, you'd say that wins matter and ERA matters maybe. And then with the NL MVP race, you would say, well, it's all about whether you make the playoffs or not. So it's kind of this mix of old school is dead and old school is still very much here. I think it's even less that Blake Snell led the league in these categories than that he hit round numbers. Like if you look at his ERA, I wonder if the interpretation would have been different if he still led the league in ERA, but with like a 2.1 versus there's something shiny and really mesmerizingly appealing about a guy with a, an ERA below two, even though we know that there's not necessarily a huge difference there and ERA isn't the best measure of success. It just seems different when you look at that on a guy's baseball reference page. I wonder if the benchmark specifically, even more than leading the league, is what swung voters toward his side in what I think was a, a really close race. I don't think I'm as far toward Verlander as you are, Ben. I might have considered Chris Sale, which perhaps speaks to my past in love because Chris Sale didn't even qualify for the innings title. But uh, I think it was really close, and those round numbers sort of pushed the voters over the edge towards, towards Snell. Yeah. Trevor Bauer was right there too, I think, even with the 175 and a third innings. And then you've got Garrett Cole. I mean, there was a, a good sort of second tier there that uh, is hard to separate from the top guys. Yeah, I didn't have a vote either, but I would have gone with Snell. And I think that's it's not because of the innings or the wins. Watching the whole ERA estimator uh, evolution over the past decade, I think I've just decided that particularly for backward looking stuff like awards, like. I don't care what could have, what should have happened. You know, I, I care more about what the actual run prevention totals. And, you know, Zach, I, I know you were talking about how, how Snell, this was weeks and weeks ago, but, you know, Snell had, uh, he outperformed his peripherals, but also had good strand rate numbers. Like, just based on how he, on the underlying numbers, it's unlikely that he would ever repeat like the run prevention numbers that that he put up but you know that's what matters at the end of the at the end of the day and 
you know, all things being equal, like a couple years ago when when Kershaw had that incredible rate season, but only threw something like 148 innings uh, and ended up, I think, being fifth in Cy Young voting. Um, I would have gone Scherzer that year, but the the gap in terms of uh, uh, the run prevention numbers wasn't as big and the gap in innings was huge. And, you know, hundred we talked about round numbers in terms of Snell getting his ERA below two, you know, that might've been part of it, but you know, Verlander got over 200 innings, but he only threw, I think about 30 innings more than, than Snell did, which is big, but it's not the whole story. So I, you know, if Verlander had come out on top that I would have been okay with that. If, if sale had come out on top, I think there's a a legitimate argument for that. And it's just, this was kind of an, a little bit of an uninspiring class from, from AL starting pitchers. Like I, I was, I looked at this and I was like, I don't know how far do I have to stretch to get Blake trying to the top of the ballot? You know, like that's <laughs> yeah. almost how, how I, I was kind of in that camp with you until recently, but I think I've swung all the way back around again. So I understand that position that when you're projecting future performance, sure, you care about the peripherals and what should have happened. But when you're voting on awards, it's all retrospective and it's what happened. And the guy who prevented more runs was more valuable. So I get that. I used to think that, but now I've changed my thinking because if we accept that certain things are under the pitcher's control and certain things aren't, and that those things are more predictive of the pitcher's success, then don't we then have to look at, say, FIP or whatever ERA estimator you want to say? Those are kind of what should have happened, but they're also what did happen. They're what the pitcher did. There did the pitcher strike out a lot of guys? Did the pitcher walk guys? Did the pitcher give up homers? If he didn't do those things and he still allowed fewer runs, well, maybe it's because his defense helped him out or maybe it's because he got a little lucky with how the hits were bunched up against him. And should we give him credit for those things? I don't know that we should, even when we're looking backward, because it's not like you can put all of the run prevention in his side in his column. It's also a team stat to a certain degree, ERA, and a luck stat. So to me, it's it's not either or, really. You can't just say this one is future-looking and this one is retrospective, because even the one that supposedly is sort of future-looking does actually tell you what happened in the past, and maybe it does a better job of telling you what the pitcher did in the past. So run prevention is is a luck stat and you know Im- impacted by things outside the batter's control but like so is batting average so is on base percentage and yeah there there's a lot of luck and randomness in baseball and i to yeah, try to expected woba war yeah that will determine everything and like <laughs> jesus i mean like <laughs> the, the problem with you know if you want to talk about expected woba or you know um or dra based based war then we're better at making making the distinction between what players can control and what they can't uh, than we are before, but we're still it's still not perfect. Um, and you know that's like the God. There's a logical fallacy with that with that name, like uh, or that that that's based around. I'm sure Keith Law would would have my head for for saying that, but like I'm still not satisfied that that we can completely extricate uh, luck or team impact. And to a certain extent, I'm not sure we should, because at some point this stops reflecting the reality of, of the game as it has been, as it's played out on the field. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it becomes, you know, not to, you know, this is going to sound like an old person straw man argument from 10 years ago, but it becomes a little bit theoretical. So, you know, I, like I said, I see the argument for Verlander. It's fine. If he had won, you know, he would have, he would have been well-deserving. Um, you know, we, you saw how I talked about the the NL Cy Young and MVP race. Like, there are award races that have right and wrong answers. I don't think this was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe that's the legacy here. I mean, maybe you disagree on the, the NL MVP vote, but we're kind of arguing over smaller differences than we used to with all of these end-of-season award votes. I mean, the voters are smarter than they used to be. They have better information at their command. And so we're not arguing about, you know, should Juan Gonzalez have won (laughs) or something where he had three ones above replacement or whatever it was, like the, you know, 70s through 90s kind of MVP votes that in retrospect, you can't understand what anyone was thinking at the time. These we're talking about, well, this guy was a little bit better than that guy, maybe, but they're all good and they're all in the ballpark. All right. So speaking of right and wrong, uh, 
Uh, ben, you wrote about Bryce Harper's defense, a very interesting, illuminating, illuminating piece that like I've been very big on Bryce Harper as a as a, uh, a free agent candidate. But this is the first time that that really gave me pause because I I was just sort of writing off the the bad defensive year that that he had. But, you know, there's very, you know, very possibly something more to that that could damage his value going forward. So I would recommend that everybody yeah. go and read that. Um, but the glove is not the problem. The haircut. <laughs> Is yeah. the problem. Um, <laughs> Bryce Harper has the best hair in Major League Baseball, and then he got a perm, and it's like yeah. it looks like it. It looks like Francisco Lindor's old haircut, which looked great on him, like the Naomi uh, from the Expanse haircut. But like, <laughs> what the hell is he doing? What a rebuke! Like, what a <laughs> it, it's offensive to people who don't have hair that good to watch him. <laughs> Slap God in the face like that. And it's, I just, I won't stomach it. Like, oh my God. I agree. Yeah. With great hair comes great responsibility. And he has, he has really, it it comes on the heels of Scott Boris bragging about great hair is what you're getting when you sign Bryce Harper. And and that was true. Not until that grows out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long a, a perm lasts. Fortunately, it's not actually permanent, but this is not a great look for Harper or for anyone. And this is a man who has his own branded line of hair products, right? I mean, his hair is part of his brand. And part of his appeal, and he is taking a real risk here. I mean, it is it is a choice, and it's distinctive. I don't know how it would fit under a cap, and hopefully by the time he has to wear one again, it won't be there anymore. But I mean, it's it's the off season. You know, some guys just put on a bunch of weight over the winter, and then they work themselves back into shape in spring training. So <laughs> maybe that is what's happening here with Bryce Harper's hair. Zach, how many millions of dollars is Bryce Harper costing himself with this haircut? <laughs> See, I wonder if it's almost the other way around. If someone is like, you know, we want a, a new face of the franchise, now they can have a new hair of the franchise too. Is this the hair you, you want yeah, it to be? Yeah, that's not, that's not $400 million hair. <laughs> Maybe no. we'll look back on it. Like, you know, when the Marlins established their center field sculpture and everyone said, this is an eyesore, what's it doing there? And then they got rid of it this offseason and every single person had changed their mind. Oh no, this was distinctive. We don't want it to go. Maybe this would go the same way as sort of you you dislike it, but then ironically start to like it, and then it just turns into outright enthusiasm. He's got to keep it for a long time in order for that to happen. And I'd say the difference between this and the home run sculpture, or even something like Gritty, is like that was weird and ugly. Those things are weird and ugly and fun as opposed to just boring. And Bryce Harper's old hair was beautiful but also interesting and this is interesting and also ugly and interesting and, ug- and ugly is a downgrade from interesting and pretty that's <laughs> that's where i come down on that's you know where i i disagree with with that analogy although if, like if he makes this his thing then i'm sure there will be bryce harper perm wigs in uh oh who's gonna sign him uh in the white Sox gift shop in uh in three years but mm-hmm. i just can't defend this. It's it's a shocking lapse in judgment. I think he's, you know, a $350 million player with that haircut as opposed to $400 million <laughs> with the old one. Um, yeah. Speaking of, of ugly and interesting versus ugly and boring, the Miami Marlins have new uniforms. I know, Ben, you don't like uh, uniform talk, but <laughs> this is just terrible. Like, it's it's half-assed. It's it's black and you need... So it's, it's the base... Color scheme is is black with sort of blue and red lettering, and uh, my problem with this is like this could be cool. It's it's sort of '90s. It looks like a blacklight poster, which I guess like the '90s are long enough ago that we could sort of bring that aesthetic back. But the colors are too subdued. You need to go pink, and you know, I've said this before. One of the minor but also troubling effects of toxic masculinity on American sports culture is we don't get pink and, and purple in the in sports uniforms, which have been deployed to great effect throughout Europe and and South you know South America and Africa and soccer and cycling and things like that. Uh this red should be pink. And we've gone from ugly but interesting Marlins uniforms to ugly but boring. I think I disagree. I think I like it. It's sort of soothing, I think, these blue colors. It's kind of aquarium colors. I think it's not garish. It's not 
bright neon, which seems to be what you want it to be. But I kind of like this better. I mean, I know that, you know, you liked the Diamondbacks bleeding uniforms, Mm -hmm. right? Which everyone else hated. So maybe the fact that you hate this means that people will like this. I don't know. I don't (laughs) know. Judging by the way this podcast has gone so far, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Yes. Whatever the opposite of the consensus is, is where you come down. But yeah, I I don't hate it. I think it, uh, I think it looks kind of okay. Zach, you, when we did our, our players' uniform or players' weekend mock mockups, uh, you chose the Diamondbacks uniforms. Are are these the right kind of ugly? These Marlins uniforms? Well, I think I'm in, just in the wrong entirely because reading about the the Marlins uniform history this week, it seems that a lot of people really disliked the original Marlins uniform, which was all teal. And I love that as a kid, so I think I'm just entirely in the wrong and have essentially no basis for my opinion. I think these uniforms are fine. They're kind of bland, but bland isn't necessarily bad. I wish they would go back to the teal from the 1990s. I agree with that entirely. I mean, it just feels like, what are some of the, like, you know, the difference between these and the Brewers uniforms that everybody hates with the gold trim is like, it's the difference between Wisconsin and South Florida. Like this is, this is South Florida, uh, Brewers M with the, the wheat logo. Um, uniforms i congratulations derek jeter you made florida boring (laughs) so that that brings us to the last um big uniform change the cleveland indians have uh unveiled new uniforms they've got a new red alternate top we'll see how that goes you know i don't like the the red Sox red alternate top i don't like the the one the braves had um a while back you know but it i think it looks good on the angels i think it looks good on the phillies so we'll see how this this ends up looking but the most uh the biggest change is no more Chief Wahoo. And I think we can all agree that uh, boring, you know, comprehensively boring is better than boring and <laughs> yeah. racist. I think we're about a decade past the point where we could say, good job, Cleveland Indians, for getting rid of Chief Wahoo, because that is way overdue. But at least they have finally done that. And I don't really like the the red tops either, I don't think. I don't, sometimes you have to see it on a human. I, I got to see it on the field, yeah. Yeah, right. It's it's hard just with these mock-ups and, uh, you know, invisible man wearing them to know what it will actually look like in a game. But don't love the red, but love that Wahoo has finally gone away. Exactly. All right. Um, anything else, guys? We got to the end of the, the rundown. Now that we're actually planning these podcasts. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, did we miss anything? Any news that, that you guys want to hit? I got nothing. All right. Uh, in that case, I'll let you guys get to to baking pies and, and traveling for Thanksgiving and so mm-hmm. forth. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, reconvene next Tuesday and we'll talk about all the, the new trades and bad haircuts and bad uniforms. But until then, uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Go Paxton. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. I would like to thank James Paxton, Bryce Harper, and Derek Jeter for giving us stuff to talk about. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for stitching today's episode together. And thank you for listening. Everybody have a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next time.